0: Despite the divisions and conflict in our world, there are people who are working to bridge differences and reduce and resolve conflict nonviolently. We spotlight those people, those doing that work today, and the ones who've done that work throughout history, on Peace Talks Radio, the nonpartisan forum for talk about peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. Welcome. And today, two authors. Later on in the show, Brian Gruber, who made a global walkabout visiting countries where U.S. military forces have been sent over the last 50 years to see how the people in each feel about things now. But first, David Smith, who talked with over 30 young people to learn how they are finding jobs, practicing principles of peacemaking and conflict resolution. He wrote a book about it called Peace Jobs, A Student's Guide to Starting a Career Working for Peace. And he talked with our Suzanne Kreider.
1: Well, I've spent 30 years in the field. Um, My own career, I started as a divorce lawyer, um, and I did that for a number of years. And I then quickly went into education. And in education, I taught at a community college. Uh, I taught peace and conflict courses there. I started a community mediation program. Um, I did divorce mediation when I was a divorce mediator. Uh, And then I went to the U.S. Institute of Peace for about 10 years where I was working with young people I was also a Fulbright scholar I taught overseas and one of the things in all of those situations I was always working uh, at least when I started an education with young people and it would be college students it could be high school students but invariably when I would talk about how exciting this work is and how important this work is they would come back to me the and say, well, how do I get a job doing this? Or they'd say to me, how do I get your job <laughs> right? how to do this? And i got to tell you, Suzanne, in the beginning, I didn't have good answers for them. Uh, and the answers that I would have for them would require many, many more years of education and m- many roads that they would have to travel to get to that. And that often is discouraging to young people. If you're talking to, to young people of, of, of modest means who may be in community college and said, well, if you want to do peace work, you're going to have to go work at the United Nations and get a degree in diplomacy and pass the foreign service exam. That's really a long road and maybe not realistic for a lot of people. So I started to realize there's a different way of looking at it. One of the things that I've really come to to think about a lot, Suzanne, is that when students, particularly students in college, but I think also in high school, they get excited about what they're learning, right? They learn about the world around them. And It's there that they often develop their passion and their interests. What we don't want to happen is we don't want to happen is when students graduate from college, they say, "Okay, now I've got to get a real job. I got to forget about all that passion and all that all those things I was interested in. Now I got to buckle down and focus on those student loans and, you know, that kind of stuff. I don't want that. I want you to do that. I want you to find that work, but I don't want you to leave that passion behind. So I want you to figure out how to take those things that you were interested in as an undergraduate when you were a member of the Model UN or you did dialogue work or you were, you know, head of a diversity club. And how do you take that and put that into your career? That's what I'm trying to focus on. David Smith, most people think of a peace
2: job as something like being a conflict resolver or mediator. What
1: would you say? I would say that's uh, somewhat of a limiting way of looking at a peace job. I think there was a time that we looked at it in that way, but I have come to the conclusion working you a long time that really every career, every job, uh, you can make into a peace job. Uh, you can change what you're doing, uh, change the things that you're focusing on, and really focus on building peace and resolving conflict. How do you make every job a peace job? well i that's not it's not going to be easy all the time, but I think for someone who's intentional about their career and thinks about their values and tries to incorporate their values in the work that they can, one of the things to think about is broadening what we think about as peace and peace building um, I think as you were saying, you know is it resolving conflict is it mediation? but there are a lot of other things that are related to it trauma healing for instance uh uh, community building, uh, certain types of activities, such as uh, you know, promoting well-being within the society. All of those things can be peaceful activities. So there are a lot of jobs that fall within that. David, what's the competition like for peace jobs? Well, the competition is like the competition in any field. One of the things to recognize is that when we're talking about a job that focuses on building peace, we're not necessarily talking about a different field. We're talking about nurses who do trauma work. We're talking about police officers who do restorative justice work. We're talking about teachers who focus on peer mediation in the classroom. Uh, We're talking about IT people who spend their time supporting um, uh, not-for-profits and conflict resolution organizations and developing their web pages. So we're not really talking about a particular field. We're talking about all the fields out there. But we're talking about how is it that when you get hired somewhere or you're looking for work that you make the argument that these are other things that I bring to the work to make yourself more competitive.
2: Let's say someone wants a job in some kind of conflict-resolving or mediation-type
1: job. Does that require a formal education? I think that's one of the challenges, I think, in some respects, and one of the ways that I think as a field we have not always – prepared our students for what the marketplace looks like. Increasingly, jobs that um, have the title mediation or facilitation or person these are all jobs that uh, increasingly require graduate degrees, and so you do have to have specific training. What I like to argue with young people, particularly students who are in college, is that You can graduate from college with nearly every degree, any degree you imagine, and you can go out for work and you can say, look, part of what I want to do is I want to work somewhere where not only am I doing the work of the organization, but I'm creating space in my day or in my work where I can help resolve differences or help promote peace or help build sustainability. I can do those things in my work. So it's not the mediation job. It's all the other types of work that you can get a degree with that's important.
2: I'd like you to read part of your book. It starts on page 150. So beginning with the words, the world of tomorrow, I want you to go down to, on page 151, find your peace job.
1: Sure. The world of tomorrow will require transforming idealism and enthusiasm into pragmatic strategies for building resilience in communities bringing groups together that distrust each other and may seek revenge, helping individuals who may pursue violence, and comforting victims who are dealing with the aftermath of serious conflict. Whether you are a humanitarian worker seeking to resettle those displaced by war, a high school counselor working with inner-city and marginalized youth who might see little hope in the future, a police officer who uses negotiation rather than a firearm, or a business owner that buys goods from communities for a fair price in order to build peaceful sustainability. You are a peace builder. Now go find your peace job. David
2: Smith, what is a story of a person in a peace job that is most
1: memorable to you? So in my book, I have uh, 30 profiles of young people, mostly young people, um, who are working in fields that they define themselves as working to promote peace. One of the things that I, I, I started thinking when I was writing a book was, when you're 17, 18, 19 years old, the people who are going to inspire you are going to be people who are just a little bit older than you are who are working in the field or in their 20s. So most of the stories in my book are people of that age. So one of the stories that strikes me in particular is a young woman by the name of Yatsinia Negron, who's from Orlando, Florida. She actually went to a community college for two years. Then she went to the University of Central Florida. And In the book, she talks about the fact that she really lived in a a house of violence growing up, and violence was kind of the culture of her family. And then she went to work uh, in – she got a degree in criminal justice and went to work in domestic violence. And now she works for Domestic Violence Clinic in the Orlando area and does actually training, training other people in doing domestic violence work. So, you know, often students and young people take their own circumstances and realize there's almost a calling that comes out of their own circumstances in which they want to make a change.
2: A story that really stood out for me was the one about the woman who opened the cheerleading academy. Can you tell that one?
1: Yes, 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 yes. Caitlin, right? Caitlin Nelson. She's Canadian. And, you know, one of the things to think about is that we we often think about um, peace building in, in kind of very traditional ways. That is, there's, a, you know, specific, um, uh, you know, uh, activity that you're going to engage in or you're going to be working with people and so forth. But Caitlin started to realize that um, we think about sports, for instance, as increasingly sports is something that you can bring people together who are different. And she recognized that cheerleading, which many people would can consider a sport, was something that she can use as a means to doing that. So at her college, which is actually in, in Canada, it's in Ontario, she really started this, um, this uh, cheerleading squad where the cheerleaders themselves do a lot of community work and are really advancing peace and conflict resolution with their community. So they work with a whole – not only do they do their cheerleading work, they do all these after-school work that they do with their community. It's a really good story. In a way, you can make anything uh, and promote peace through it, any career.
2: David Smith, I want some recommendations for our listeners in two categories,
1: people who are looking for jobs and people who are not looking for jobs. I mean, first of all, I think there's self-assessment that people have to do. So they have to think about what it is that they want to do and talk to someone and talk very, very broadly about the things that are important to them. Often people go to work and they think about a job they want rather than the values that they have. And I think they need to talk about the values that they have. And then I think one of the things I recommend to people is that they need to, you know, they, you know, obviously we talk a lot about networking, joining organizations, being with like-minded people is really important. And finding organizations and entities in your community, not necessarily that are going to give you a job, but it's going to allow you to connect with people that think similarly to you and have the same values as you. That often leads to work. Sometimes when we think about work, we go right into looking for work rather than trying to find a community of people that, that have the same values and think the same way that we do. And I would say that that would be something that would be really important. Um, and, you know, joining associations that the issues that are important to you are issues that they talk about. So it could be dialogue, for instance. There are increasingly communities that are doing dialogic work. But it could be global issues like a World Affairs Council. If you're not looking for work right now, but you're trying to think about what your future could be like, I think you can do some of the same things. But one of the things that I would suggest for people who are not looking at work is really thinking about what your career has meant to you up to now. I mean, you're not looking for work, and maybe you're very satisfied in what you're doing. But what are the, 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 the legacy and the things that you're leaving that really make the world a better place? And what then can you do and where you are now to make change, um, often people want to continue in the work that they're they're in, but they want to do something different than they were doing. So find where that need is in maybe in your in your work, it may be in your community of where you can tweak. We would say some of the things that you're doing on in order to promote peace. And do you have any special tips for older people? I well, I I one of the things I recommend uh, uh, Daniel Pink's uh, Drive as a good as a good read, uh, a good book in that respect. Um, I you know I think um, older people often um, sometimes they're isolated, right? I think as we get older, sometimes because we're busy and we're working, we isolate ourselves, and I think finding community, getting involved in civic organizations. Going back to school, I increasingly see in my graduate degree program, which is in conflict resolution, I increasingly see students in their 50s who are taking courses, not because they're pursuing a degree, but because they're just interested in the topic. So think about going back to school. You know, One of the uh, sectors of higher education I work a lot with are community colleges. And uh, I, I travel around the United States giving talks to colleges and universities on Peace and conflict resolution. A lot of times, I'm talking to community college audiences. Lots of community colleges are offering courses in conflict resolution, peace building, uh, you know, dealing with differences, dialogue awareness. Um, and when you're a senior citizen, for instance, community college courses are often free. So go back and take a course. That's something to do, also. Later in the program, we'll have more from Suzanne Kreider's conversation with
0: David Smith, author of Peace Jobs: A Student's Guide to Starting a Career Working for Peace. And after a short break, Brian Gruber, author of War, the After Party, a global walkabout through a half century of U.S. military interventions. That's when Peace Talks Radio continues in a moment. <laughs> This is Peace Talks Radio, the nonpartisan series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. You can explore our entire archive going back to 2002 at our website, peacetalksradio.com. You can also subscribe to our podcast from iTunes. I'm Paul Ingalls, and today we're speaking to authors of recent books that caught our attention. We'll have more later from David Smith, author of Peace Jobs, A Student's Guide to Starting a Career Working for Peace. But right now, Brian Gruber who made a global walkabout visiting countries where U.S. military forces have been sent over the last 50 years to see how the people in each feel about things right now. He told me about his inspiration for traveling to those places and writing the book War, the After Party, a global walkabout through a half-century of U.S. military interventions.
3: What struck me, do we achieve the mission that we set out in all of the military interventions that have gone on all through my life? and what are the real costs? And are there narratives out there on the other end of the gun barrel that might be different than the narrative that we hear in the U.S.? So I decided doing a sort of citizen audit and doing a global walkabout, if you will, to scenes of covert and overt military actions over the last half century or so, and finding new stories might be interesting. I think the most poignant stories for me were the more immediate ones or or recent ones. I was in uh, Iraq in January 2016 and in Afghanistan 15 months before that. And those were really distant culturally for me. And to understand the stories and understand the fact that people welcomed what we did in various ways but were mystified at how we stumbled and and what our interests were and and what we did after that. I think particularly in the visit to Iraq, I spent time mostly in the Kurdish area in Erbil and and went to Halabja where the chemical bombardment took place. I met this fellow who was a 31-year-old surgeon in in Erbil who decided once he learned what I was doing to take me all over northern Iraq. We were about 50 miles away from Mosul, which was occupied by ISIS, and at one point went to the frontline base because his Peshmerga friend's brother was a captain in the Iraqi army, so we visited the base. But we went to Halabja where the chemical bombardment took place. And these folks, of course, who didn't speak English and welcomed me into their home. We had a lavish lunch, and my friend Samir, the surgeon, uh, provided the the translation. And they asked me during Saddam Hussein's chemical bombardment during the Iran-Iraq war uh, of the Kurds in Halabja, where was the United States in 1988? And, of course, where we were was providing satellite communications and logistical information to the Iraqi army and approving the use of, the, the, of dual-use technologies that would, would allow the use of chemical weapons that were all bought in the West because we had our feelings bruised by Ayatollah Khomeini and the Iranian Revolution. We did not want Iran to win. They were sending human waves of people across uh, the battlefield. And so we enabled... The Iraqis to use chemical weapons, and because many Kurds uh, wanted Saddam Hussein to be overthrown, and because Halabja is very close to the Iranian border, uh, I was able then to do research to learn that we provided that technology the West provided that that weaponry and When Iran went to the United Nations and went to the Security Council to protest over the use of chemical weapons, it was we who blocked that resolution because we were complicit in that. Of course, three years later in Gulf War One, we got chemical weapons religion, and th- that's when you started to hear this phrase, they bombed their own people and Saddam gassed the Kurds. Well, having been in that living room, in that Kurd family in Halabja, it took on a different complexion to me.
0: Mm-hmm. It must have been an awkward and challenging situation to be in to sort of have to answer those questions and speak for the American decisions at the time? It sounds like maybe you didn't and then you went off and did the research so that you could get it in the book. But were there times when you were having to say, I don't know, I have to look into that. I can't answer that well, I question. Think, I
3: think, Paul, there were, there were a couple of different dimensions to that. One, what you find in traveling, and you've probably found the same, is that around the world, people often differentiate between the United States government and United States citizens. So there's a certain warmth and openness and curiosity about Americans and American culture versus a condemnation of specific things that the government does. Whether that's fair or not or whether we deserve that, that's often the case. But also often there was a dynamic in the conversation. Similarly, uh, got into meet at the largest mosque in Kabul, Afghanistan with... Uh, Dr. Ayaz Niazi, who is the leading Islamic scholar in Afghanistan and the leader of the largest uh, mosque in the country. And I spent six hours at the mosque and two hours with him, with his son translating, sitting cross-legged in a room with a a group of people at at the mosque. And there was an ability for him to—and I told him I was Jewish— for him to talk about Zionism and Israel and the United States and Obama's speech in Cairo and Iraq and our support of of forces that were opposing democracy in some of these countries. Uh, he wanted to intellectually engage. He wanted to learn. And I was open and uh, made it clear that I was not an apologist for the United States government. But yet I explained, well, you know, You said that about Obama, but in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, you know, here are other ways to look at, you know, his record. So I found, of course, if I didn't find this, I might have been dead, but I found that people were, uh, as as humans, interested in engaging and open to uh, having a conversation to learn and to open and to tell their story, even though they, f- they may have felt that what my government did was horrific.
0: We've done stories on servicemen who served in Vietnam and who were dealing with PTSD. Mm-hmm. And they were in a program where they go back to Vietnam right. to sort of visit their former opponents. And they're always overwhelmed now, you know, getting on 50 years later, that uh, as a rule, those people are very forgiving, very curious uh, about meeting the people that were their former opponents. And their humility uh, and uh, openness to forgiveness was so overwhelming for these uh, soldiers that it really started to heal them in a surprising way. So I guess my point is, is that I'm wondering if, since you visited both places, if there's a different feel for a place like Vietnam where time heals wounds or, you know, visiting more recent places where conflicts have uh, been going on, that uh, it's still in process and it's still an irritated wound.
3: I think there's a a time factor and there's a cultural factor. I mean, clearly uh, in Vietnam, I interviewed a lot of young people and for them, they want to move on. And by the way, their grandparents who might have been in the war, They want to move on because they're focused on their grandkids. And to this day, Vietnam looks at China as more of a long-term adversary than the United States to the degree that they're thinking of allowing us to come back to use their naval bases. They were at war with China on and off for a thousand years. We were a blip on their radar. So it is a generational thing, partly. It was a long time ago. I had an interview with a fellow, Ra Diaz, who's kind of a scion of uh, a prominent... Panamanian political family. His father was the best friend and personal secretary of Omar Torrijos, And uh, his two grandparent, great grandparents were both presidents of, of Panama. And at the end of our interview, he said, you know, uh, we're Christian people, we're very forgiving, but there are some cultures in other parts of the world that might not be as forgiving. You can make a theological argument as to how forgiving Christians may or may not be. But I think time is a factor. I think the Muslims that I met, almost without exception, through all my travels, insisted that they were peaceful, shared tenets of their religion passionately with them, disavowed the actions of the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, uh, ISIS, etc. But, you know, when you have political grievances on the ground, um, that some of which are still going on, where your brothers and cousins and neighbors were killed or destabilized or your country was destroyed in effect... As it is in Iraq, then you have tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of people directly affected, where it really is still a current story. And the one additional factor there is that they do remember the Sykes-Picot Agreement from World War One, and they do remember a century in Afghanistan going back further to the to the British occupation. So, particularly for those who are outside the cities and not. Uh, educated and, and have limited understanding of Western culture. Mm-hmm. They look at colonialism and Sykes-Picot and the U.S. invasion as all uh, part of a whole, and they uh, culturally and personally continue to resist and resent that in, in many ways.
0: Well, they know their history better than perhaps we should know, and in some cases it sounds like they know our history better than we remember.
3: And they have a different perspective on our history, Uh, shorn of the veneer of divine providence or justification, or uh, we don't have to obey the UN charter in ways that other countries have to obey them.
0: How did you pick the places that you wound up going?
3: Good question. The original thought was, can you circumnavigate the globe and travel without ever leaving countries that have been invaded, occupied, intervened in by the United States? And... The answer is probably yes, but some writer friends suggested that it would be too many countries and I'd only be spending a few days in each place. So I decided instead to travel around the world and focus on four regions, Central America, the Balkans, Southeast Asia, and the greater Middle East, including Afghanistan, to look at a spectrum of issues that have defined how we've decided to intervene over the last 50, 60 years.
0: So once you drop into those places, then what? What... Uh, what path did you pursue to really tell that story in a compelling and honest way?
3: There were three main ways, probably best illustrated in one day in Nicaragua, my last day there. One was just by showing up. So, La Prensa, the newspaper that sparked the Sandinista and Nicaraguan revolution, I just showed up at the door. And at first it was a holiday, so there was no one there, but eventually got in to see the editor-in-chief and spent an hour with him. Another was through contacts, through networking. So foreign policy writer Stephen Kinzer made an introduction to Carlos Chamorro, who's the son of the famous uh, La Prensa editor Pedro Chamorro, who was assassinated before the revolution. And then the third was through my Airbnb con- uh, host in Guatemala. His daughter introduced me to a friend who introduced me to another friend who was a democracy act, uh, activist through all the last 30 years and has supported a, a variety of different forces. So some of it was serendipity, some of it was networking through contacts that I had, and some of it was just showing up. And I think the other phenomenon was, Would will people trust you to tell their stories? And what happened was that in the first 90 seconds or two or three minutes of a conversation, people would be suspicious, i.e., who are you? (laughs) And if you're able to convince people, which I usually was able, that I really am doing this. I am a citizen. I'm an independent uh, person. I don't work for anyone. And I want to get your story. Uh, At that point, people open up and then want to introduce you to friends. And through six degrees of separation, in the places that I would visit, I would get extraordinary interviews by people saying, I believe you are who you say you are, and I want to help you.
0: Of course, people will be able to dig down into the individual stories in the book and the individual histories. But I'm curious about uh, an overall sense of the uh, interviews that you had. Is there a way to translate that into an overall sense of how these places felt about Uh, Americans intervention in their history.
3: Well, the extraordinary thing for me, particularly in places like Vietnam, is that worldwide, people still have a tremendous respect for this country, Uh, whether it's our science and technology or history of democracy, our popular culture, uh, mostly people like this country. And even when they uh, violently, if you will, disagree with what we've done in certain interventions, even talking with Kurds in Iraq, for example, who benefited, but who saw the state of Iraq uh, be destroyed since since 2003. Uh, we often are given the benefit of the doubt. There often is forgiveness for ways that we've stumbled through their country, while there is an awareness of things that actually happened, such as how did ISIS uh, get created and get empowered and spread as far as it did. The people there quite apart from whether they agree or disagree with the 2003 invasion of Iraq, have stories to tell, and particularly in the case of Iraq, unlike some of the some countries, it was more like the Kurosawa film Rashomon, where different people have different pieces of it. Collectively, they fit together in a fascinating way, even though some had a different recollection of what happened or a different perspective on, on what happened. But often, uh, when the facts are there on the ground, by going there... And by physically being there, being in that geography and talking people who were witnesses, you're able to get a deeper understanding of what happened and a variety of, again, diverse viewpoints.
0: Is there a consensus on the ISIS growth?
3: In Iraq, the Kurds, the Shia, the Sunni all have the same story as to what happened with ISIS, that there were no Islamists in a serious way before the invasion of Of Iraq because Saddam Hussein brutally repressed them. After there was a small militia that grew after the uh, invasion, there were some jihadis who came from other countries that allowed them to expand, but ultimately the cause for ISIS was unequivocally from all these folks, including from the Kurds who were brutally repressed by Saddam Hussein and by, by Arabs. When Paul Bremer came in with the Coalition Provisional Authority and fired all the Ba'ath Party officers and the uh, members and the the army officers, you had tens of thousands of Sunni army officers who were the elite of the society, many of whom lived in Mosul, by the way, the second largest city. They suddenly had huge caches of weapons, but were humiliated and unemployed. They were elders or highly respected in their tribes, and they were suddenly being killed by Shia militia and oppressed by a Shia kleptocracy, in their view, installed by the United States and now supported by Iran. So to them, uh, ISIS was a force, but it became a serious military force when the Iraqi military that was fired, uh, most of whom, of course, under Saddam Hussein were Sunni, uh, wanted to get their dignity back, wanted a paycheck wanted to restore a Sunni state, and that was the cause of the growth of ISIS.
0: After a short break, we'll have more with author Brian Gruber talking about his book, War the After Party, a global walkabout through a half-century of U.S. military interventions. And we'll hear again from our earlier guest, David Smith, who wrote Peace Jobs, a student's guide to starting a career working for peace. Peace Talks Radio continues in a moment. (music) I'm Paul Ingalls, producer of Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. You can find out more about our program, pictures, videos, our entire archive, and more good stuff at our website, peacetalksradio.com. Right now, we continue our visit with Brian Gruber, author of War The After Party, a global walkabout through a half century of U.S. military interventions. Gruber traveled to the many countries that have had U.S. military interventions in the last half century and wrote the book about it. I think a lot of people who um, lived through the Vietnam War and the Iraqi incursions seem to bring up this idea that America didn't learn its own history. Do you make any of those connections or hear any of those themes uh, in your comparative uh, interviews? Especially with those two bookends. I mean, there are so
3: many conflicts um, that are are covered in the book from those four regions. But uh, in in the final chapter, there's a quote from Gore Vidal uh, where he talks about the United States of amnesia. We don't remember anything before Monday morning. And I think that's true. And part of the reason for the title is the idea that we get all ginned up about wanting to incur another military intervention. We need to bomb Iran. We need to intervene in the civil war in Iraq. We need to overthrow Gaddafi in in, in Libya. Uh, we need to expand our military involvement in, in Iraq, uh, etc. We get all ginned up. It's all over the news. But then 45 minutes after that's over, we rarely look back. And after party is kind of a vulgar way of describing it. But when the party is over, when all the drama and excitement, if you will, is over, we don't look back and say, what did we learn from that? There are specific lessons to be learned from the Vietnam War and our relationship with Ho Chi Minh and how that happened over the decades. That we, much of the American people, were learning bits and pieces of that during and after the Vietnam War. But clearly, those uh, lessons learned were not instructive for those who decided to invade Iraq in 2003. Mm-hmm.
0: And I imagine too that there's this business about the maintenance of this enormous military um, machine that consistently calls uh, on American diplomats or politicians or even citizens to say, well, this kind of power must be able to solve a conflict or a problem elsewhere with just a little bit of this application of military power. And again and again, that America's pulled in that direction in some senses because it is there. Uh,
3: I think that's true, and you overlay on top of that the idea of divine providence, or if not divine, then historical providence. What
0: God is on our side absolutely. Is God is saying?
3: instructing us to mm-hmm. do these things because, as Stephen Kennzo said, in and I said an that in quotes by the it way. would be churlish yeah. of us uh, not to take all of God's blessings that we have here, our way of organizing society, and give that to other people, even if they're too ignorant to really understand that they want it. Deep historical roots in colonialism with, with that idea. But when I went through on the way to Serbia, after going doing my research in Central America, I traveled through all the old empires from the UK to Belgium and France and Germany and, and others. And Uh, there was a similar narrative there throughout all of them. You can even uh, track it back to the book of Joshua when the Israelites invaded Jericho. And it goes something like this, that God wants us to take our superior moral code and way of life and bring that to the world through the overwhelming application of violence. And some people will make some money in in the process. So, There is this idea of providence, and even if we become more secular and we don't talk about it, although many Americans still do, there is a feeling we have this historical mission. And that becomes a justification to do the violent things that we do because there is almost always a humanitarian smokescreen or veneer over every military uh, intervention that we do.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, and it bounces back to that general good sense of America, even through all this, uh, you go to places where they, they still admire America, they still uh, want to emulate America, some want to get to America, or want America to get there. So there are these lingering um, qualities about the experiment in democracy that seem attractive to even the nations that we've incurred
3: upon. That's right. mm mm-hmm. I mean, there, there was one fellow, I think he was the former mayor of uh, Mahmur, which was taken over by ISIS and then liberated uh, uh, by the Kurdish uh, Peshmerga militia. And that's right outside of Mosul, which is Iraq's second largest city occupied by ISIS for, for two years. And he said, people don't come to your country for money. They often already have money. Some of them do, but they come for your democracy. And by democracy, I think he was talking about a certain ideological underpinning which, whether or not we're living up to it, is an image that, that people have for a certain standard and way of life.
0: Did you, though, in this ethnography, if you will, uh, of these places, run into people who were just tired of America's movement around uh, the the world and just didn't share that same sort of rosy idea about the American dream?
3: Well, and I think there's a distinction between the American dream and American exceptionalism and exceptionalism, meaning um, whether or not you want we, what we have, we're going to give it to you because we have this historical mission to, to provide it. That's a very old and widespread idea in this country. Um, of course, it varied from place to place. But generally, such as a pub session I had with several uh, Serbian uh, professionals and 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 journalists, they just think the idea of American exceptionalism is absurd. Uh, I mean, they they laughed out loud when I would present the idea to them. I also interviewed a former North Vietnamese trainer and educator of North Vietnamese troops before they would go south, who now is a Jehovah's Witness with an American son-in-law in in Vong Tau, Vietnam. And what he said was, obey the UN charter. Of course, the UN charter came from the Atlantic Charter and from FDR's Four Freedom. So it was really spawned during the FDI, FDR administration in terms of the specifics, which included no territorial in, uh, aggression and the uh, uh, freedom of people to determine their own uh, destiny and to, and to be free and for colonialism to end. So his point was you all brought these ideas to the world, but you don't live by them. Yeah. You feel that you're above them, so you know he just distilled it to a very simple phrase: obey the UN Charter. Right.
0: Is there anything particular story that is a favorite of yours, or something that I didn't ask you about that uh, something that uh, means a lot God, to you? So about? many
3: stories. When I was in Kabul, I wasn't getting much exercise, and finally. A contractor who I had dinner with at the Hotel Serena, which had been attacked some months before by the Taliban, said that he was going to go with a couple of his friends to a pool. So we went on a Friday night to a Kabul pool. I'm not a great swimmer, but Afghans are really bad swimmers because it's a landlocked country and pools are a relatively recent phenomenon in places like Kabul. So I was swimming around and suddenly... Afghans started coming to me asking for swimming lessons. And I told them, you're really talking to the wrong guy. And I kept trying to (laughs) swim away. I was wearing $12 goggles, which to them was very exotic and proved that I indeed was a master swimmer. So finally, I said, really, just go on YouTube and watch some videos there. But they, they, they were unrelenting. So finally, I showed them three things, which they completely ignored and continued to splash around the pool. And At the pool, I felt compelled to say, what do you think about the American occupation? And I got very positive feedback. Oh, we are very grateful for everything you've done. But there was one fellow who I call the Angry Buddha, a very muscular guy sitting cross-legged on the lip of the pool, who was talking in Dari, the Afghan language, and pointing at me and laughing at me and talking to his friends. And I couldn't resist. So I asked uh, one of his friends, what's he saying? And he said, you're, uh, uh, the United States is a An occupying country you're all murderers and at that point i went up to him and and started to engage him and he asked me uh where are you from and everyone told me there tell people you're canadian or brazilian and for some reason i said i'm an american jew tell me what do you think about jews and he was just he was just frozen he didn't know how to respond because people were telling me that Islam was a religion of peace and very tolerant, which I believed. But I wanted to ask him because he seemed so belligerent. And he asked me if the United States was an occupying country. And I said, that's a trick question. Of course, we're an occupier, but your government wants us here. And we engaged for about 20 minutes. And finally, my uh, friend who is this 25-year contractor in the Middle East was walking by, shaking his head, saying, not a good idea. And I got out of the pool and then in the shower, um, I found myself standing between those two guys again. And at that point, uh, they were telling me, you know, there's going to be a caliphate and everyone's going to be Muslim. And I was saying, oh, no, that's the Fox News narrative. And everything I've heard is counter to the Fox News narrative. Um, but I was trying to draw them out. And they, and they were saying, everyone will believe what we believe. So here, naked in the shower, you know, <laughs> I said to, to, to the English translator, who was a very earnest fellow, Uh, I said, listen, everyone believes what you believe. Uh, Jewish fundamentalists think that they have the truth. And Christian fundamentalists in my country, they believe that we have the truth. And you and everyone else in the pool, every Muslim here, is going to burn in hell because you don't accept Jesus Christ. You you all have been at war for 30 years killing each other. Why don't we all just let each other believe what we want to believe? And we've got bigger weapons than you do uh, and more of them. So... um, why do we all have to think that we have the truth and everyone else is an imposter?
0: How did that message land? <laughs> I think where
3: the me- where the message landed was that um, the, the angry Buddha guy who only spoke Dari really did not want to engage with me anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the other folks crowded around my locker and they wanted contact information. They wanted to send me to websites. And they were – very, and getting back to our conversation before, they were very earnest about mm-hmm. wanting to share what they passionately believed in. And they wanted to hear from me and my contractor friend, Mr. E, insisted that if I ever meet them, it's only in a certain public place where there's security. Mm-hmm. So my feeling was there was an opportunity for dialogue there. And the reason why I took a very, very small risk in engaging in that way was because I felt we we weren't getting anywhere Mm -hmm. unless people honestly communicated their positions and tried to struggle to come to some understanding and empathy for each other's decisions. Mm -hmm. I haven't had the pleasure of reading your
0: book, um, but I'm curious, as we wrap up here, if you make an attempt at a moral to the story, or is there an overall uh, sense of how this has left you, this uh, journey that you've taken and documented? in terms of you know the broad picture or the personal picture of peacemaking and conflict resolution moving into the future?
3: Yes, um, I had to be careful and I thought about this a long time because I wanted to approach this from a non-partisan, non- non-biased point of view even though we bring our own biases to, to things in life. So I wanted to approach this with an open spirit of inquiry. But it was clear to me by the end, there are a number of conclusions at the at the end of the book, And I hearken back to FDR's Four Freedoms and the Atlantic Charter and Charlie Chaplin's great speech at the end of of The Great Dictator, which uh, may have even influenced uh, FDR's speech. But it was clear to me, quite outside of partisan politics, that violence rarely achieves political outcomes. I mean, it's just empirical fact. And that big, ugly, unintended consequences or blowback happen uh, as a result, that we we just don't expect. And the reason that blowback is powerful is not so much that people want to harm us because they have grievances, but because the government and our media uh, and other institutions have not properly educated us as to the scale of violence and horror that have happened in these conflicts and the reactions of people uh, who were on the other end of the gun barrel, then blowback is when you're surprised when it happens because you don't know why do they hate us. And that's when we come up with simplistic answers, such as in Vietnam when we said, oh, it's a global communist conspiracy. It's not nationalism and a desire for freedom and independence. That's been a thousand-year-old battle in Vietnam. No, it's not that. And in the case of Islam, no, they want—they hate our freedoms as opposed to their specific political grievances over the last 10, 50, 100 years. But I think, uh, particularly in the context of your show, um, violence does not often achieve desired political outcomes, and that was clear to me by the end.
0: Why are we so surprised uh, at the blowback by now?
3: I think because we don't educate ourselves on what we've done. Another conclusion that I had was that the scale of horror and violence on both sides is something that, if not hidden, and it usually is uh, hidden. it It's something that we don't confront. And I think one of the reasons for my trip was to physically experience these different places and to see how close Halabjab was to the Iranian border or to touch the exposed concrete in Belgrade at the radio TV building and get, get a more intimate, up-close feeling for it. Otherwise, it becomes quite abstract. Your favorite baseball team uh, lost in the ninth inning yesterday, you have a certain emotional reaction that might be greater than 600,000 people dying violent deaths because we're just not close enough to it. So I think somehow there needs to be a better understanding of the specifics of what happened, what, what happens, and, and sadly, in our political discourse in this country, that doesn't often happen.
0: You can hear more from Brian Gruber, author of War, the After Party, At our website, our entire interview with him is at peacetalksradio.com. Look for our January 2017 edition. We'll close with a few more minutes from our earlier guest, David Smith. He's the author of a book called Peace Jobs, a student's guide to starting a career working for peace. Suzanne Kreider talked with him. How does somebody find a job? That's really
2: in conflict resolution or mediation. Like where are those jobs?
1: Yeah. So if you're thinking about a more traditional job, that is often, you know, I'm thinking I'm I'm often speaking to undergraduates, for instance, and I'm trying to to think about any field that they can go into and where they can kind of make that little space for doing conflict work and peace building work and change their work. But some people say, you know, I wanna do I'm gonna be a mediator or I wanna do humanitarian work or I wanna do um, you know, I want to do very, very deeply uh, in you know work that's really directly focusing on resolving conflict. One of the things that I would, would suggest is that students have to think about training and education because those types of jobs increasingly require training and education. So, for instance, mediation work, right? So you can do community mediation, but anybody who's a community mediator, there are five hundred community mediation centers around the United States has to get community mediation training before they do it. If you want to do other types of mediation, you have to get training also. So one of the things that's going to be important is identifying within your community a community mediation. Say community mediation, use that as an example. And a lot of seniors go back and do community mediation. Lots of people who are retired and have more time to spend, they'll go back and do it. And community mediation is looking at differences that arise out of a community. It's like neighbors who are arguing over a property line or a dog that barks too much or something of that nature. Identify what the community mediation center is your community. Look for training. Take the training. And then the training will allow you then to do some work, volunteering. You're not going to get paid necessarily, but it may be what you really want to do uh, periodically. Um, But you also have to think about graduate school. If you're a younger student, for instance, and you're thinking about, I want to make a career in diplomacy, for instance. Diplomacy is a is a peace-building career, then you have to think about you know going to a, a program where uh, maybe a graduate program that's focusing specifically on that because you have to then position yourself as a candidate who is well-versed, for instance, in languages or has traveled overseas and those types of things.
2: But those jobs are really competitive. Well, it's not that
1: easy. <laughs> Well, I I think often what we're looking for when we look for work in the peace field is there's still this notion that I'm going to go into the classifieds in the newspaper or online, right? And I'm going to look for a job that says peace or conflict. And that's the job I'm looking for. So people look for work with very specific words or terminology in mind. What I would say is I would say, what is it that you're interested in doing? Don't think about I mean, you're interested in doing peace, but what context do you want to work? Do you want to work in your community? Do you want to work in industry? Start from that standpoint and assess the skills that you have and where you might want to do it. So a lot of people are doing peace work. They might not recognize it.
2: And what does your crystal ball say, like what's going to happen in the future?
1: <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I one of the things that I would say is that increasingly what is happening is the notion of peace building and promoting peace is being um, um, sh- mainstreamed, we would say. It's being considered in many, many fields because many fields today, particularly business, for instance – with globalization, businesses are in parts of the world that um, there is, uh, you know, they're, they're in an environment where there is conflict or there is questions about um, the things that may be happening from a business and that may be s- infringing on human rights. So businesses are concerned about, we call it co- corporate social responsibility, that they and the work that they're doing are promoting a fair wage and protecting human rights and looking at ways in which the business can be there to to to, uh, to increase the peace in a community rather than show divisions. So you're going to see this more in businesses. You're going to see this more in community organizations, more in education, because I think people are recognizing long-term sustainability of the planet. And for us to get along is going to be really incorporating these skills, not just in the mediators and the humanitarians, but much much more broadly uh, across the, the panoply of things that people do. David Smith, many people think of
2: military like, oh, that's combatant. But your book, Peace Jobs, talks
1: about there are military jobs that are peaceful. Like what? Right. So one of the things that I like to, to to remind people of is that often the role that the military plays is a role that is trying to uh, either resolve or trying to halt violence. That we think about the military in a in a in a way um, you know that you know they're invading and you know you know using military means to to make change, but. So, for instance, if you look at traditionally the United Nations and peacekeeping uh, forces around the world, the blue helmets, as we would say, they're deployed around the world to keep peace and to and to work within communities that are that are often um, uh, at, at at differences and could be very violent. They've been doing that type of work since the, the inception of the United Nations. But in, even in the United States, one of the when I was I was at the U.S. Institute of Peace for a number of years. And one of the entities that we worked with was uh, the U.S. Army War College, which has something called the Peacekeeping and Stability Operations Institute. The Peacekeeping and Stability Operations Institute is designed to train military officers to recognize that there are other means to working and and making – reducing violence uh, rather than their firearms, rather than a traditional – uh, military means. So negotiation, right? Uh, t- promoting dialogue, promoting collaboration, uh, working kind of in what we would call civil affairs between communities that are, you know, at, 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 about ready to commit violence against each other. So even the American military has recognized that, you know, there's, there's often more you can a- accomplish, uh, you know, f- less a- from the butt of your gun and more from your mouth, in a sense, um, in making a difference. David Smith, how would you summarize the most important points from your book, Peace Jobs? I think the most important points in my book in Peace Jobs is that anyone can be a peace builder. Anyone can do that type of work. I'm reminded of the story of my father, who I talk about early on in my book, who was a printer. He was a letterpress operator. Now, I think unless you are 50 and above, you wouldn't even know what a letterpress is because that's the way we used to do business cards and letterheads and that kind of stuff, right? And and he later on in his life, uh, when he stopped working, he actually got ill, he was always very passionate about making a difference in the world and promoting peace. And so what he ended up doing was working for a peace center in Baltimore. Um, and his work actually focused on the skill sets that he would had as a printer, that is collating and proofreading and distributing literature and so forth. So he's able to bring those other skill sets he'd had and apply them to promoting peace. And it always got me to think that we think about peace as something separate from the work that we do every day. So any job, I would argue, you can make into a peace job. You can be a printer. You can be a nurse. You can be a fire, a firefighter. You can be an IT person. And then you can create that additional space in order to do that work to promote peace building. Head to our website, peacetalksradio.com, for
0: much more with both David Smith, who wrote the book about peace jobs, and Brian Gruber on his book, War, the After Party. You can check out our entire interviews with both guests at peacetalksradio.com. It's where you can hear every show in the Peace Talks Radio series going back to 2002. You can follow links to more details and research on each episode, photographs, audio downloads. There's a link to iTunes to subscribe to our podcast there, too. You can sign up for our monthly newsletter, and it's also where you can make a tax deductible contribution to the nonprofit media organization Good Radio Shows Incorporated that produces Peace Talks Radio separate and apart from your public radio station. That's peacetalksradio.com to find out more and to help. Support also comes from the McCune Charitable Foundation of New Mexico, KUNM at the University of New Mexico, and a Spinal Health and Movement Center, and Ruben Ramirez in Albuquerque's Knob Hill neighborhood. Nola Daves-Moses is executive director of Good Radio Shows Incorporated. Allie Adelman composed and performs our theme music. For Suzanne Kreider, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio.